This is the going nowhere fast graph. Going in all directions as much as we can kind of graph, kind of image. Uh, it's something that when we're pulled in all these directions means we don't make a mark. We don't have a life worth living. Um, we can't really have substantial meaning if we're living in all these directions all at once. Might be comfortable maybe in some ways, but it's not substantial. We need to be saved from going in all these directions at once because I don't know about you, but this is kind of my default mode if I'm not thinking about it. I'm just like, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, let's do this. And that can be really good because there's a lot of things to get involved with. But um, really what we're called to be as human beings is devoted to something. Devoted means all in, kind of all for it. If we're, but if we're gonna be devoted to something, it better be something that's worth it because our lives are worth a lot. And I think sometimes we might be able to treat our lives a bit like, like a careful stockbroker. So we have all these stocks and we invest in you know, 20, 30 of them in case one goes really wrong, that's fine. We like mitigate the risk and you know, it's, it's okay in the end. Um, we don't want to risk losing anything and so we invest a little in all sorts of things. And for us, it's the same as a dash of career, a dash of family, a dash of job, a dash of church, a dash of money, a dash of sex, a dash of relationships, all the kind of things just in case something goes wrong. And then we end up with a busy life in all kinds of directions like this, not able to properly be devoted to one thing. But God is completely and utterly devoted to us and our good. He's all in with us. He's completely powerful to give us all that's good in Jesus. Only Jesus is worth that really precious devotion, that really precious amount of our lives that we should give ourselves to. Only Jesus is worth that because he came to earth for us. He lived for us, suffered for us, died for us, resurrected again for us, is now ruling and reigning, gives his spirit to us. Jesus is all in. He's completely all in. And thankfully, God does not spread out his risk. He's completely all in. He's totally into this idea of I'm gonna love these people and they're going to like not only receive my love but continue the mission that I have for them in order to love others. Now, that previous story we looked at last week of those 41 verses, sorry, Kathleen. Um, <laughs> uh, that, I mean, what a, what a, I mean, that's one, those are 41 verses in a book that's full of examples of God being all in. He completely pours himself out on us. He pours himself out on his people, devotes himself to us. And I think sometimes, if you're like me at all, when we read these stories like Pentecost or whatever else that goes on, it's easy to think, oh, no, if I was there, then I, I could, my spiritual life would be completely different. Like, I'd totally, totally get the idea of being completely all in. I think it's easy to slightly uh, over-romanticize the times of the Bible or the experiences people are going through. Um, here's an ex- here, here, just to give you an idea of how similar our time is now to the early church, the context we're reading now, um, it, just a, a few things of how similar that culture is then than it is to, to here. Uh, there was a cost of being a Christian. For one writer on the early church says, for the comfortably off converts, becoming a Christian was not a step upward in society. Yeah, we get that. It's not like your, your workplace is like, oh, you became a Christian, way to go, slow clap. No one's very excited about that. Um, according to, to Origen, who is what, an early church father, an early church, church teacher, said uh, that new converts uh, had found, who were like high up in society, actually had a little bit of advantage in the Christian subculture, which is kind of like for us, we go berserk when some Christian uh, athlete or celebrity you know, says something about God, like, yes, let me share it on that Facebook as quickly as I can. Um, but no one else really cares about that. That's just like what goes on in the Christian subculture. But new converts found disgrace in the rest of society, is what this person who was living then said. And also then, there were many ways to be spiritual. Tolerance was really high. Unless, of course, you were a Christian in which tolerance was very low and you'd be put to death in some situations. Living out your Christian faith affected work and social life because for them, so much of their work and social life was intertwined with um, pagan celebrations, celebrations of gods, 
We say pagan celebrations now, then, it's just drinking a whole lot, and if they drank a whole lot more, it would turn into an orgy. Not too different from our time today. <laughs> People were pulled in different directions. People had different devotions. The government, work and social life, Christian community. Um, if you were married to someone who wasn't a believer, which is very common back then, how to, how to navigate that. There was a social cost. There was a high tolerance for everything but Christianity. People were living for the weekends to get drunk and sleep around. Not much really has changed. Like We live in that same kind of time. And of course, all of us feel the pull of going on in different directions like that. So the early church had the same problems we do, plus that big problem of maybe being put to death. But the church was growing, 120 to 3,000 in one day. That's crazy. Of course, it's not something we have control over. That's the spirit at work. But now, as we read, as Ross read the very last verse, people are being added to their number daily. I want to know, what does it look like for the church or for a believer to be devoted to God in a hostile environment? Because that's a lot like how I feel living out my faith. I want to know what it looks like to go from that in all directions to something more like this, like devoted, substantial, something like that's a mark that would be made. I mean, last week we saw that small things become great things through the work of the Spirit. There's a room full of people praying, waiting on God. God pours himself out to everyone who's there. God gave all these people his Spirit and he poured himself out completely. Uh, the same is true for us today. God pours himself out completely upon us, all, everyone who follows Jesus. Sometimes that means we're gonna have experiences that are kind of crazy and we can't understand. Sometimes, most of the times, it's gonna mean we're gonna have experiences that are really normal and feel kind of bland. But in either case, God has given us all of himself. And here's what we're gonna focus on today in this section here. That God has given us all of himself and that frees us to give more of ourselves to him. We're never, on this side of heaven, we're never going to be completely perfect in all ways. Only Jesus was that. But surely there is going to be one small step we can make in giving ourselves more to him. And that's what devotion is. God has devoted himself to us. He's given himself to us. And that frees us to devote a little bit more of ourselves to him. Now, this is really good news because it allows our distracted, kind of crazy lives where everyone's calling for our attention to be substantial, to, be, to have a weight to it, to have a gravity to it, to have meaning. It's a cure for the middle-class ideal. So God has devoted himself to us and that frees us to be more devoted to him. So being devoted to God um, affects our relationship with God, which is obvious, like devoted to God means you're gonna be more connected to him, but it also affects our relationship to others, which may be not so obvious, but it's also what's going on here in these verses. So first, let's just talk about uh, the relationship with God. I think um, uh, maybe you're like, well, of course, devoting yourself to God means you're gonna be, you know, have a better relationship with God, but not always, because it's easy to treat God like a spiritual vending machine or like a spiritual sugar daddy, or just like, I'm just going to pray. I'm going to tell him what I want, what I want him to do. And if he doesn't do the thing I want him to do, I'm going to be angry with him. And I'm going to say, God, why don't you love me? And so our prayer lives are like, me, 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 me. Like that is not, if that's our, if that's our relationship with God as a spiritual vending machine, we're totally missing out on so much more because we don't need a vending machine. We need a God. We need a redeemer. We need a Lord. And that's so much more of, uh, for us to experience. So being devoted to God changes our relationship with him. And really quickly, that second word there, they devoted, this word devoted, we're gonna say that a lot. It's there on the slide, it'll be there for the rest of the thing here. It means to be faithful to. To be devoted is like the thing that you're devoted to is gonna be close at hand. You're gonna be near, you're gonna be persisting, there's gonna be perseverance. It's not always gonna be easy, it's gonna be work. You're gonna be like dedicated, de devoted. Those are all kind of, the, the ideas around what this word means. And devotion and the early church is what we're gonna look at because it's the same thing for us. First, we see they're devoted to the word. They were devoted to the word. 
Uh, you remember how we talked about um, capital A apostle and lower K apostle. The capital A apostles were those who were walking with Jesus when he was on earth, walking with Jesus when he resurrected, and they're also the ones who are writing the New Testament. They're the, the teachings that the people are, are, are devoting themselves to. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching because at their time, they didn't have the Bible. They had the Old Testament. They did not have any of the New Testament yet, and this is what they're devoting themselves to. Now we have it in a book, which is crazy. We don't have to hear someone say the words in order to know what the Spirit of God is. And this is how God chooses to reveal himself. This is another example of how God is all in with his people. He's, even in the way that God communicates, he uses people to be his words. Like, why would he do that? Surely it would be easier for God to just like hand a book down from the sky or, or an MP3 from the sky that we could listen to on our ways to work. Like, but he, for some reason, God has used people to communicate um, his teaching because God is devoted to us. And these people in the early church were devoted to the Bible. So they're devoted to the Bible. Also, they were devoted to prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. This meant more than once a week, more than twice a week. They realized without prayer, they could not make it through the day. They were living in a hostile environment, very much like ours. Ours may not seem hostile on the outside, but to our souls is incredibly hostile. Just as hostile as it was for them in their physical lives, it is to our spiritual lives. And they knew without prayer, they're gonna be sunk. They will be pulled in some other different direction. Prayer is where we get to speak our words to God. The Bible is where we hear God's words to us. Prayer is where we get to speak to him. And those in the church were devoted to God, which meant being devoted in these areas. And they were faithful. They were close at hand in in their lives. They persisted in them. This is what it means to be gospel formed. If we're not devoted in these ways, we will be formed. It's just a matter of what will we be formed by. This is how to be formed by the gospel because these are God's words to us. We desperately need to hear hear it. Think back to the, um, the Exodus with me for a moment. The Exodus was the story where God's people were enslaved in Egypt and uh, through lots of plagues and all sorts of crazy, horrible things. And through using Moses, he released his people. They traveled around the wilderness for 40 years before he gave them the promised land. So the Exodus is where they're enslaved by Egyptians. Those, those Israelites must have seen some crazy stuff. Pillars of fire, plagues, like people dropping dead, snakes like going in the camp and like people, snakes not going in the camp. And then when they, and they're traveling around in the wilderness and then we get to the promised land, they don't even fight a battle and like the, the walls crumble down. Like what kind of insanity must have been to experience all that for an Israelite? And yet the archeological excavations dated to when the Israelites made their homes in that new promised land show uh, symbols of Yahweh worship, of, God, of worshiping God, but also they had other idols, other Egyptian idols on their mantelpiece, not even ashamed of it out there. To have an Egyptian idol through all of that meant while they're in slaves, they had Egyptian idols. While God freed them, they had Egyptian idols. While they're walking around the wilderness for 40 years, if you're walking around the wilderness for 40 years, you don't wanna to carry tons of stuff with you. So the stuff you carry with you are things that are really important to you. They had a grip on these idols. When God delivered them and gave them the promised land, like, God came through on every single promise he gave to his people. Those idols never came through with any, and yet they're still holding on to these idols right next to a symbol of how, what it means to worship God. The Israelites experienced some of the craziest things God has ever done, but those experiences themselves were not enough. They weren't enough to keep them, to transform them. They, hold on, they held on to those idols for generations. They passed them down to their kids. They were not actually devoted to the God that saved them. And we're the same. We hold on to idols just in the same kind of way. And we find better ways to hide them, though. We're, we're smart enough not to put them on the mantelpiece anymore. In the wilderness, holding on to idols. In dark times, holding on to idols. In good times, still holding on to idols. So what's on our mantle? 
the question or that the answer to that is the questions of what teaching are we devoting ourselves to? What are we functionally praying to? I mean, kids are, um, maybe the best way to, to answer this is like, what do your kids say? Because kids are clever and they see through the hypocrisy. Like, they're like, yeah, you say this, but we act like this. And this is really, what it really means to you know, be part of this family. Are we devoted to the teaching of the comfortable middle class? I think this is something for, for all of us, something we will never get past as people who live where we live, how we live. We will always be kind of struggling against that. And that's not, the point of this isn't to overcome that and go on to the next thing. The point of this is to trust God enough in that struggle and ask him to kind of change us as we go. I mean, I think one small example, it's amazing how, uh, how early of an age we start stressing about what uni our kids are gonna go to. At two years old, you want your kids to go to this primary school because if they don't go to that school, then they're not gonna go to this one, they're gonna miss out on that, and then what uni are they gonna go to, and then their life, like, they're just gonna live on the street. Like, Everyone wants their kids to go to good unis. Everyone wants their kids like, to be like the Alex kids and like, going to good unis, doing the good things. Like that, I want Colin to be like that. That would be fantastic. But are we teaching our kids that where they go to uni is more important than where they spend eternity? How, like, with Colin, am I talking to him more about his schoolwork? Or am I talking to him more about his, like, his walk with God? I mean, he's little, he's four, but he knows a lot. Like, he can tell you, I don't know what he can tell you. He can tell you what he thinks. <laughs> he can tell you lots of things. And you won't even have to ask for them. I mean, are we functionally praying to the university system in order to give our kids a good life? I, oh, I hope not. But it's probably more true than, than I'm comfortable with. I mean, parents, we really need God to work in our lives because our kids are learning from us how the world works, what to believe in, how to structure their lives. Like, where is Jesus in all that? Not just on Sunday, but in, like, in all things. I don't want Colin to know like one-seventh of his life is for God and the rest of it, he can do whatever. Every child to a parent is saying, dad, mom, teach me about the world, teach me about what matters, teach me about who I am, teach me about who God is. And we are teaching them that. Regard, like, that's, we are teaching them that. So it's how are we doing that? And that's a weight, right? I'm not good enough for that. We may not have temples dedicated to Athena, but we're worshiping all sorts of other things. We really need God to work in our lives. Well, let's get a little bit more uncomfortable maybe. How do we approach sex? How do we approach relationships? Everyone here has desires for sex do not come from a devotion from God. Everybody does. And you have to be married or whatever, like married. I, I remember when I was very young and naive, I was like, hey, once I get married, yeah, sex up. I think I got that one covered. What'll be the next thing after that? Like, it's like, it will always, there will always be some level of struggle. A Psychology Today article in 2018 said, not, maybe these numbers are low, I don't know. It said 73% 73 of women and 98% of men reported internet porn use in the last six months. Like, Sounds a little low to me, but um, those who reported using porn more often noted a greater perceived lack of control, what this article says. So people who are more likely to use porn more often, it, was a, it wasn't an element of, sex is rarely actually the fundamental thing behind pornography, it's something else. For, it's often porn, and this article said uh, that this, these, uh, this data suggests that using, the people are using porn to compensate for relationship issues. Of course, of course, but we don't really think that. The lie is that pornography doesn't hurt anyone. The reality is it destroys existing relationships. Like the idea of training your eyes and your brain and your heart to objectify somebody else on the screen for your own good, of course that's gonna affect all of your other relationships. Not to mention like the role human trafficking plays with, with pornography and everything. I mean, porn does indeed hurt people, including the user. But we don't need porn. We can just as easily use a partner or a love interest or anything else, really. All the things that exist in the world can just be another object that makes us feel good. 
If you're not married, why are you with your partner? Why are you seeking a partner? Like, why would you want to seek a partner? What are the qualities that are actually most important to you? And does that match up with the faith that you say you're devoted to? And for those who are married, how are we building up our spouse in the ways that our faith tells us to? That's not gonna be easy all the time, or maybe rarely easy. And, but that is, again, it's not up to our own power to do this. The reason why the title of the books that you guys have on the front says, Power to Live on Jesus' Mission, that comes from the Holy Spirit. It does not come from us. It's not up to us. Whoa. And then there was a sound like rushing wind. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, glad we have the car. Um, but uh, yeah, so the, the, uh, that power to live on his mission does not come from us. And when it comes from us, that's when it stops from being Christianity, it becomes some kind of empty religion. It's the power to live on Jesus' mission comes from the Holy Spirit who enables us to do this. And I think it's just so easy to use so many other things that are not God to be a God stand-in. Like there's so many things that are out there. I mean, you know what stand-ins are? Like in, um, here's an example of a stand-in. Brad Pitt and Brad Pitt's stand-in, slightly different. Um, so a stand-in for, uh, for like a film, they're there for rehearsals, they're there for stunts, they're there to do all the stuff that the actor's you know, face might get marred doing. People do not go to a film for this guy, this goofy guy here. People go to a film to see this guy. This is why they're paying money to see the film. They wanna see Brad Pitt's face. They don't wanna see that guy's face. He's just a stand-in, he's not the real thing. And the only time that he works is when you can kind of see him a little bit. All these other things, a good uni, a good job, a good partner, sex, pornography, whatever, these are all stand-ins for the real thing. And so when we, when, when we stop for a moment and think, what are the stand-ins in my life? I want that goofy image to be up in there. Like, this is what you're devoting your life to? That goofy guy, his mouth can't even close. Like, that's the goofy, like, do, he's so not worth your time. Brad Pitt is worth your time. Maybe in more ways than one. God is worth our time. So being devoted to the apostles' teaching and prayer looks like bringing our whole life story into the story of the gospel. What God has to say to us, what we have to say to him. See, God saw us in our need, in our lack, and then saved us and poured himself out on us so that we could experience his fullness, not some other stand-in's fullness. If we're devoted to other things, we're gonna miss out on what he has for us. And we can't do this by trying harder, but that doesn't mean we don't try. Because remember, being devoted is, is about um, persistence, about perseverance, to work at something. So that's our relationship with God. Um, secondly, it's about our relationship with others. So being devoted to God will have an impact on our relationship with him. That's no big surprise there. It's easy enough to understand. But being devoted to God also has an impact on our relationship with other people. In fact, this is the way to have the best relationship with other people in our lives. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he said to love your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And he said, the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And really the people were asking, were like, well, what, like, but what's the one thing, Jesus? And Jesus was like, yes, that's the one thing. Those two things, it's the one thing. And no surprise, that's what's going on here. So uh, the first thing we come across, the devoted thing, is fellowship. The apostles' teaching and the fellowship. If this place breaks down... <laughs> It will be an amazing story to tell, though very scary in the moment. Um, uh, focus on Acts, yes. Uh, so let's talk about, uh, they said they were devoted themselves to teaching and to fellowship. Uh, thankfully, that word fellow, fellowship is in there because that's where the word church comes from. That's ecclesia, where the word, how we translate the word church. So the church is not a building, thankfully, because we, we don't have one and we may cease to even have this. 
the church is not an event, because thankfully this is more than the church. I mean, this is a great part of it, but it's, it's not the church. The church is the people, the relationships of, the, of, of what we have together. It's where we um, get that word translated church. Being devoted to God means devoted to fellowship, and that's what the word teaches us, because there's no lone ranger Christians, or if there are, they're very unhealthy Christians. The, the, what it means to follow Jesus is to follow Jesus together. And it means to be part of his family. Now, family is a place where people don't have to fit in, but where people belong. Uh, We don't have to wear false faces around each other. We can actually be who we are and be accepted for that. There's a great quote. If you're familiar with the author and speaker, Brené Brown, um, she writes a lot about shame and this kind of belonging stuff. She had a great quote about what fitting in and belonging was. In fact, she was talking to a bunch of, um, in America, a bunch of middle school students uh, about like, what does it mean to fit in? What does it mean to belong? And they came up with this definition, which is amazing, amazingly um, wise. Fitting in is sacrificing your true self to be part of a club, where belonging is the group making space for people to be their true selves. So if you're sacrificing your true self to be part of a club, that's the feeling you get when you're at a party and you feel lonely because all sorts of people are like looking at you, but no one's actually seeing you. When you're chatting with loads of people, but you don't really like feel like people know you, that loneliness you can have, even though you're surrounded by other people, that's what it means to fit in. Belonging is the courage to bring your true self to a community and letting people see that. This also creates responsibility on the community, on the community to make those spaces happen. Redeemer, we hope, is a place of belonging. It's not perfect, obviously, and it never will be. But the responsibility that all of us have is one, to bring our true selves, and two, to make space for other people's true selves. That's a difficult thing, and we're so afraid of that, even though we so desire that. We, don't, we aren't often like that. But that's what fellowship is, and that transforms the word fellowship from like a churchy kind of word of like, oh, a good time fellowship, to something that our souls really like long for and desire and really wanna be a part of. That's what we're, our souls are hardwired for. And what we find out is be, it's part of fellowship is uh, the breaking of bread. Yeah, who doesn't like bread? Kathleen made this bread herself today. It's amazing. We like food here. Who doesn't? Only fools don't. Um, Some of us actually bake the bread. We like our lunches, part of our Sunday worship, like after the service. We're eating lunch together. Come to our house, we'll eat food together. We're devoted to food. That's that's a really easy one. Uh, There could be no easier way to get to enjoy each other and know each other than having people around for a meal. You're gonna have to eat anyway, so why, why not do it with others? And it doesn't mean uh, it, it should be a big production. In fact, it should not really take a whole lot to have another family member over. If your brother or sister's coming over, you don't hoover the whole place and don't you know, spend hours making a meal. Like, they just kind of come over and they probably look through your cupboards and open your fridge and serve themselves tea or whatever the thing might be. Um, living in that way allows someone to be a family member instead of a guest. Sometimes in the name of hospitality, we can um, keep people as guests which maybe in the first or two like, interactions is good. But if we keep people as a guest and we stop them from being a family member, then we don't really get to truly know each other. So it's all about um, making it easy for people to come in. And if we have a high bar for having people over, we're never gonna have people over because it takes so much energy to do it anyway. Like It's okay to have people over and not Hoover. It's okay to have people over for a simple soup that you bought at the store, controversial. How could it's a, it's. You don't have to always provide pudding. That's controversial, because I love pudding. Um, if you're invited, you don't always have to bring something, which again is controversial, because I love people when they bring wine or when they bring, like, you can if you want, but it's not a requirement, because family members don't always have to be like that. So if we're family, family come over and they can just be themselves. The higher the bar we put on, the less we're gonna do it. 
And here's the thing about breaking bread, about eating food. Food is not about the food. It's about the people. I'm convinced that this world would be less divided if we had more people we disagree with or aren't like, connected to around the table for a meal. It's hard to hate somebody or, or be someone's enemy when they're eating your store-bought soup across from you. Like, it's a much easier way to live um, with that tension of we don't agree with all things, but we actually enjoy each other's company. So there's, there's that. There's food. Okay, enough about food. My stomach's already rumbling. Um, so they had fellowship, and they also shared these three things. They shared time, they shared resources, and they shared needs. They shared time. In verse 44, it says that everyone was together. They were together. All the believers were together, being present for each other. They met for worship every day. Now, we don't have to do that here at Redeemer. Every day at 6 a.m. in the morning, we're going to meet here. Um, but they had just as busy lives we have. And they're meeting together every day. They found a way in order to be devoted to God in the hostile kind of environment they found themselves were in. They didn't first see their calendar as an opportunity for stuff to do by themselves. They lived as a family. We all say we want community and we love the idea of family until it requires us to sacrifice to do so. And as a church, I think we're very generous with money, um, but it's something, again, something we'll always be working against because of where we are and the kind of people that we are um, we're always going to be working against being greedy with time. We're always going to see our calendar as something for ourselves first. And that's, that's just a reality. We're never, probably never going to overcome that, but we can always make steps towards getting better in that together, I think, as the Spirit works in us. And also, um, notice that this was in formalized worship settings, like going to the temple courts, as well as informal settings, around dinner tables. So church is that broad experience of, of, of all of that from what we're doing here to what we're about to do when, when we're done from here. And we want everyone to experience, for that to be the normal experience of church. And that's why we have missional communities, because we want that to be, because it is the normal experience of church. We've kind of made it into this event thing, you just tick a box off, and yeah, you're good for your spiritual life, which is so not true. We don't want people to have a deficient experience what the church is about. So they also shared resources. They had everything in common. They gave to anyone who had need. This is not some kind of hippie commune where they abolished the idea of private property. What they did is they used the idea of private property to help others first. They had stuff. It's not that they ceased having things, but they used their stuff for others first. If someone's like, I need this thing. And someone's like, well, I have that thing. I'll give you that thing. It's very kind of basic. Now, this last thing I had, I said that they shared needs. You won't see that here in this text, kind of like a, a deduction or an assumption. Because if you share resources, how are you going to share resources unless people say that they need something? Like, that's just not going to happen. In order for people to share resources, we have to say that we need it. We like the idea of helping others because we get to play the role of hero. We do not like the idea of, of asking for things because then we feel like we're in the, in the role of being helpless. And that goes against our grain in so many ways. That's what a gospel community is about being okay to be helpless, being okay to help others. In a family, there are no heroes, there are no helpless people, they're just members, and we all do stuff for each other as we can. Sharing our needs requires us to sacrifice our pride, and that's more difficult than sacrificing money. That's even more difficult to sacrifice time. Sacrifice the image of us having it all together, that is really difficult. That's difficult for me. I, surely that's difficult for all of us. We're all in that same boat, I think, together. Now, we say we don't ask because we don't want to put people out. Some people... You know, maybe I believe that, but mostly I don't really believe that because I don't think that's true. I think we're really what we're afraid of is being seen as helpless. We're not really afraid of putting other people, the other person out. We're afraid of, we don't ask because we're afraid of being seen as helpless. Now this, inter this um, relationship with others thing is, is interesting. It might be the most difficult thing for us to actually live out in our time here. 
So it's very basic here, and it's kind of a no-brainer if you've been around the church, but to actually really live out these words, surely that's gotta be the most difficult aspect of the Christian faith. I don't think there's anything more difficult than all the stuff we're looking at here. Just because it's simple doesn't make it easy. But it's also the thing that we actually really long for. The loneliness epidemic we keep on hearing about, why do we keep on hearing about? How could the church function in a way that is not like that? We don't want that to kind of be imported into our, into our church. Because here's the reality though, we have to sacrifice some of our individualistic freedom to get the belonging, to get the meaning that we want. It's just a reality. We cannot have it both ways. We can't live uh, their individualistic consumerist life and also feel like people know us and that we're a family to people. Those things are just, they don't work together. It's impossible. And this might mean for you, your calendar, might mean how you spend your money. It can mean lots of things and it's difficult because at our hearts, we're greedy by ourselves. Now, we're a small church, but we can still pick and choose our cliques. We can still choose who we want to hang out with, who we want to have over. We're like, oh, yeah, we're having dinner with people, but it's always like the same people who are just like you. I mean, even in our small church, we have a bit of a broad um, uh, backgrounds. Unwittingly, we're going to just go towards what's easiest. But if we're a gospel community, if we're a gospel-formed family on mission, we can't just be like that all the time. If we're greedy with our time doing with it what we want to do, we will not create a culture of belonging. We're going to create a culture where people have to fit in. And this is, this is something we all control. Nobody here, I think, spends too much time with other people. I don't think anyone here is like, I don't have to say, you know, guys, we should rein it back a little bit. You guys are just having, you need to interact with your, you know, you need to be alone more. You need to be with your families more. Like, I think you guys are just around each other too often. I don't think that's probably an issue we have. I think probably always given our culture and our background, we're always going to have to be asking, what's that next maybe small step, as small as possible step we can do to grow towards living this out a little bit more? And remember, this is not on us to sort ourselves out because lest, us, lest we forget the previous story, we have the Holy Spirit in us. So the God who created the universe, the God who created the stars, the God who's in control of this ever-expanding universe and how it all functions together and everything, for us to ask him to carve out a time for us to have one meal with somebody a week, to have a little bit of margin, that is not something too small to ask. That's, uh, the thing is, actually, we probably don't really pray for it that often because maybe we, it's not as high a priority as it should be in our lives. If we don't feel like we have the margin now, that's fine. Let's pray for that margin to exist. God can do it. He can work in those ways. I promise you he can. So what happens when people are devoted to God, when people live in this generous way? By the way, none of this is like revolutionary. It's very normal, very like basic, thankfully, because <laughs> it doesn't mean you have to like, you know, run a tough mudder in order to be close to God. Like you can just do it. It's very easy. So what does it mean when people interact in, in this kind of very generous and basic way? In this case, and not in all cases in Acts, and we're going to get there, but in this case, we see signs, we see wonders, people are in awe of God's work, not their own work, this is God's work. The early church enjoyed the favor of all the people. So not everybody joined, but they, the people who lived here in Jerusalem saw this as like a favorable thing. They saw it as a good thing. Hopefully we can be like that as a church. They weren't people who knew a lot of theology but didn't do any good for the community. This is why we do something like the Toronto Arts Festival. We have a small part in order for our church to be involved in, in what the community is about. By the way, if you want to be part of that, talk to Katrina. Maybe Katrina's already talked to you about that. Uh, she and I are um, trying to do a little bit more with that this year. But then what does it say at the very bottom, the very last verses, the very last words there? Um, the Lord, this is a God's work, not our work, this is the Lord's work. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So the Lord adds to the people. 
or that were being saved to, to, this, to this fellowship. <coughs> the mission from the early church, of the early church, arose from deep spiritual transformation. They could have leaned on their excitement. They could have leaned on the insanity of seeing Jesus like, rise up into heaven, a resurrected person. Like, there is so many things they could have leaned on it and, and functioned from, but the well that they drew from was the Holy Spirit's work in their lives. They didn't um, have passion about starting new things. They didn't have excitable personalities. They weren't like super stoked about starting the first church. I mean, maybe they were. Those things were great. But that wasn't the well they were drawing from. They were drawing from something deeper than that. I know we have all that here. I'm, I'm very happy that we have all that here. But that's not our foundation. Our foundation isn't our excitable kind of entrepreneurial spirit. Our foundation is the Holy Spirit himself working in our hearts, overflowing slowly into all these other kind of areas of our lives. So God's mission then, as God's mission now, is one that flows from his devotion to us first, not from our passion or excitement for him. He comes to us first. He poured himself out on us. He's all in, and that frees us to give more of ourselves to him. And the ultimate devotion of God to us was the father sending his son to the cross. The father gave up his son. He wasn't greedy. He didn't hold back. The son gave up his life. He didn't hold back either. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, the spirit is completely poured out on us, not holding back at all, completely poured out on us. God did not hold back. He didn't hedge his bets. He didn't say, well, if this doesn't work, if these humans don't work out, I got this other way to do things. He's all in. He's all in for us. If the work of God in this way is going on in your heart, that frees us from being pulled in all these other directions that we looked at earlier and allows us to take another small step towards giving more of ourselves to him. And it's Christ's death that we celebrate here, which is a weird thing to celebrate. Celebrate someone's death. Are we just like morbid and dark or just kind of like some kind of goth experience we're gonna go on here? What in the world? Well, it is strange to celebrate a death, but we know that his death put to death everything in us that holds us back from that life of devotion. Everything else that we're like, I will never be able to overcome this. Christ already has. He already has. And if that's true, that's a, that is a death worth celebrating. And so this bread symbolizes the wonder of Christ giving his body all in for us, not holding himself back. <coughs> and the cup symbolizes the wonder of Christ giving his blood poured out completely for us, not holding himself back. And where Christ drank the cup of wrath, now we get to um, have the spirit poured out on us, drinking in the new life that he gives us. Everyone who God has changed through Jesus is welcome to come up here. You don't have to be a member of Redeemer. We say this each week. You don't have to be a member of Redeemer. Every week, too, we say, um, if you don't believe in your heart all the things we talked about here, then you, we don't want you to lie and come up here as if you do. Because as we come up, what we're doing is we're saying, all those other, all those um, kind of goofy-looking stand-ins, those are all empty. And, with, and we base our lives around those goofy-looking stand-ins all the time. What we need is to be hungry for Jesus, for hungry for the Spirit to work in our lives, for the real thing to actually be working in our lives. And that's why we're coming up here, to, for this to be, as we're eating and drinking here, for that to be a symbol of how Jesus is, is uh, pouring into us and nourishing our lives as we are. Now, for all of us, I'm gonna leave a time of silence um, before I pray. Let's use this silence to ask the Spirit to reveal to you where you may not be giving as much of yourself as you ought to. We listed loads of things here. No, you're not gonna do 10% of these things tomorrow. Like, 
the bar is high to live the Christian life. It doesn't mean we have to be there immediately. It means we slowly get to walk this, the journey of the Christian life, not the having of the Christian life. So what is the next small step for you that the Spirit's working in you? Where do we need to be praying about? Where are areas you would like to change, but you just don't feel like you can? Um, and ask the Spirit to, to change you in that way. Where are you holding yourself back? How might God be inviting you to something more? So use a, that bit of silence to be asking that, and then I'll, I'll pray in a moment here. God has devoted himself to us, and that means we can bring more of our lives to him, and we can enjoy um, being a richer and fuller life, being with God, being with God together. Just take some time to be silently praying right now.